Hello and welcome to the August instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we read the debut novel from Emily Atami called Fault Lines. Fault Lines follows the story of Mizuki, a Japanese housewife with two adorable children and an extremely hardworking husband. She has everything anyone could ever want, so why does the book open with her wanting to throw herself off a high-rise balcony rather than spend another evening folding laundry or being ignored by her husband. Then Mizuki meets Kiyoshi, a successful restaurateur. He understands her, he listens to her, and hell, he even looks her in the eye when she is speaking. So what is a woman like Mizuki to do when she finds herself at such a fork in the road? How far and how many people is she willing to hurt in order to be happy? And more than anything, what the hell does happiness even mean? The big questions today. I am joined as always <laughs> by my co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Annabelle Lee. Hello. Hello. Hey team, how are we? We're okay. I think this is the book that I needed. The world's a little bit glum, a little bit grey, uh-huh. and this transported me to a place where I desperately want to visit in Tokyo. So I'm excited to chat about it with you both. Yeah, you and I, Mish, finished this quite last minute last (laughs) night, but it was very, very nice to just sit in my bed, read and have a lovely story in my mind. (laughs) Yeah, it it feels very different to a lot of other books that I've read and we will get into that. It's funny, we picked this book a bit randomly, right, because... I was away a couple of months ago in Queensland and I was... Oh, travel. I know, (laughs) that old thing. And I was trying to read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And we know how much we love Nick Hornby. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Nick. He's probably a lovely guy, but his book that we did last year was our least or our worst performing book, I should say. I think, I mean, it's funny that you even said last year. I think it was only like four or five months ago, but it was such a negative experience for us all that it feels like a lifetime. So I was trying to get through his book, High Fidelity, because everyone's like, no, you'll love High Fidelity by (laughs) Nick Hornby. And I thought I should give him a shot. I got about a quarter of the way through the book and I was like, no. So I walked to the bookshop and I was like, I need something that's going to make me fall back in love with reading. I need a book that I'm going to get. (laughs) Dramatic. I've read (laughs) a couple of bad books and now I've fallen out of love with the art of the written word. But you know when you're on a holiday and you read really quickly and you're speeding through them? Yeah. And then you don't want a book to ruin your momentum? Don't let me down. Don't let me waste $30. So I found this book on the bookshelf. I quickly picked it up. I didn't think much of it and I fell in love with it straight away. So it was very, very random. Mish, I want to start relief. (laughs) (laughs) Save me from me calling me. Mish, what do we know about Emily Atami and Fault Lines before we jump into the book itself? Thanks for giving me the trickiest question of the episode (laughs) because we don't know very much. Emily Atami is a bit of an enigma and that's probably mostly due to the fact that she is a first-time debut author. Fault Lines hasn't been highly publicised. As we've said, the only reason we knew about it is because you happened upon it at a bookstore. So she's a little bit anonymous. We do know that Emily grew up in Tokyo before moving to London, where she now lives. We know that before she wrote this book, she was a freelance journalist and a travel writer. I think the travel writer element of her resume is really interesting and really telling because the way this book talks about Tokyo as a city is electric. So I really enjoyed finding out that she was a travel writer. Everything seemed to make sense, particularly like the exploration of restaurants, food, culture. Annabelle, what else do we know about Emily? Well, not much. I too thought that a quick Google search would lead me into a rabbit hole (laughs) of all this information about Emily, but I Googled her and like a similar line came up about her past writing experiences, but not much else. So as you said in the intro, Zara, this is Emily's debut novel. It was published in May 2021, so May this year. It's actually the first book to be published by the new Orion imprint, 
Phoenix Books in the UK and apparently it sold its rights in the US for six figures, which Whoa. is huge. Go, Emily. So uh, it's really interesting. Emily's inspiration for Fault Lines actually came from when she became a mother herself and moved back to Japan from London, where she kind of started to observe that intersection between gender and motherhood that was so prominent in this book. I mean, Mish, you touched on Emily being a travel writer and her writing about Tokyo. I kind of want to touch on that for a second because I feel like I've not read a book that centres the city so beautifully as the great Mm. big charmer of the novel or of the story. Like I feel like in most art, New York is the city that gets all of the credit for having a big personality. But reading this about Tokyo, I was like, fuck New York. Tokyo shits on New York. (laughs) Tokyo, and I haven't even been there, was sold so incredibly as a city that has its own incredible personality. I think she actually gives that kind of parallel in the book, doesn't she? That she had travelled to New York and still made the point that if you think New York will yeah. swallow you up, Tokyo will do that 3,000 times over. Tokyo is such an interesting one and I wonder if in part, Zara, you picked this up because we've just had the Tokyo Olympics as well. I think the timing of this book is really interesting. We know that the Olympics is such a big cultural moment for everyone to find a city really intriguing. I wonder if knowing that the Tokyo Olympics were on this year made you even more curious about the city. I know in particular, I started watching Terrace House last year when there was all the conversation about the Tokyo Olympics being postponed. I think I naturally just started to have more intrigue about Tokyo. This book reminds me of the Netflix series Terrace House so, so much. If you guys haven't watched it, it is a show that basically observes the lives, the quiet but very determined, hardworking lives of young Japanese people. And it was so interesting because so many times while reading this book, I was transported to that reality show and it really sung true. Like I felt like there were a lot of parallels between Terrace House and this. So certainly if you enjoyed Fault Lines, I highly recommend binging Terrace House because it's a great reality show. I also got a real kick of enjoyment when she mentioned Terrace House (laughs) in the book. I thought of you, Mish. I was like, yeah, Michelle loves that show. (laughs) Haven't seen it. Might not watch it. (laughs) Annabelle, did it make you want to get on a plane and go to Tokyo? Yes, definitely. I had a feeling that it would because, I mean, they say not to judge a book by its cover, but I tend to do that. And the cover (laughs) of this book is beautiful. And the words inside the book really matched the beautiful cover, you know, Mm. like it was quite a transportive novel. So yes, Fault Lines is predominantly set in Tokyo, which has a population of almost 14 million people and is the most... Did you uh, say 40? 14 is still eight. It's <laughs> a lot of people. And it is the most earthquake-prone city in the world, meaning that when an earthquake hits, Tokyo's economy suffers significantly. So the novel's title kind of makes sense now. Yeah. Like, yeah. I hate to spoil the ending, which, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've read the ending if you're listening to this episode. But Imagine if people came on to this, yeah. listened to book club episodes and then got angry at us for giving spoilers. <laughs> but I felt like such an idiot because when I read that earthquake scene, I was like, oh, the title makes sense. Fault lines <laughs> and earthquakes, it all ties in together. But also, obviously, fault lines is also referred to in the book a few times by the character Mizuki, and it's used as kind of a metaphor for her choosing to risk the conventional trajectory of her life by having this affair. Mm, I just VCE English. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to quickly, while we're on Tokyo, because there was so much about this that I loved about the writing of Tokyo. And I think there has to be something about the fact that we can't get there that makes it all the more alluring. But the way that she wrote, I say she, Emily Atami wrote about cherry blossom season. Cherry blossoms! Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that! I was like... 
you've painted this in such a way where I can't remember in recent memory maybe a more vivid scene and I don't know what it is about it but I want to read out please when the cherry blossoms bloomed because I just thought this was so wholesome it's on page 149 we stay out all afternoon cycling from one park to another even as it grows dark for weeks before workmen have been busy attaching uplighters to the cherry blossom trees waiting for them to bloom so they could be lit from below in all their glory in the balmy evening people park themselves everywhere with picnic suppers and beers from the convenience store on benches perched on walls even with little mats as they take their shoes off to sit on slap bang in the middle of the pavement the atmosphere in Tokyo is always cordial and considerate and now it's as if we're all guests at a spectacular wedding who don't know each other. A feeling of excitement and goodwill binds us all. I want to go to Tokyo and specifically I want to go on the day where the cherry blossoms <laughs> bloom. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> Doesn't that just seem like, uh, yes, as I said, a really wholesome experience but a really important cultural one for them where the the idea of them, all of these people just sitting outside – I mean, maybe this is coronavirus doing it to me, but I was like, what a beautiful thought. It is so beautiful. And a lot of times when I was reading this book, I don't know whether it's because we're all a bit emotional because we can't travel. I felt like a swell of emotion every time I was reading those really picturesque scenes. Mm. I was like, man, that's beautiful. And we just don't. I mean, Australia has beautiful moments, but I don't know if we have that here. (laughs) I will say as well, I think I really enjoyed the exploration of like Japanese customs and unspoken rules that kind of keep society ticking along the way it does. I feel like such a bumbling white fool when I read (laughs) books like this because I'm so brash. I'm so loud. And like the book really gave this impression that everyone speaks in quite hushed quiet tones you whisper during the day unless you really need to raise your voice for like an emergency and I just feel like such a brash idiot sometimes when I read this stuff because I'm like that's really lovely that it's this very peaceful it's very peaceful very calm and one thing that really stood out to me I wonder if you guys will agree is that dinner scene where the American idiot businessman was like hacking at his (laughs) rice and everyone around the table was so deeply uncomfortable with him And he had no idea. Also, the scene about Lawrence getting into an elevator and not knowing that it's his job to push the floor buttons for the higher ranking people in society and to like give them the backspace in case, I think it was like a samurai comes in or something. So that stuff to me just took me away. There was a similar scene where Emily was explaining Eloise's job, the French friend, and how she didn't quite understand that like yes means no, like (laughs) everything means no. And I really resonated with that. And it got me thinking about whether there was an overlap between Japanese and Chinese culture because there was a lot about what – Emily described as like the traditional Japanese woman that I kind of resonated with. Really? Weirdly enough, but I was looking into this and I ended up in all these random (laughs) forums online where (laughs) Japanese people and native Chinese people were discussing this. And there are a lot of differences. The differences between both cultures are quite stark. But I think that the reason why I resonated with it is because I'm not a native Chinese person. And as someone who is kind of acclimatised to the Western life. Mm. I feel like as an Asian woman in Australia, somehow I've had these like subservient qualities thrust upon me in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt so many similarities between Mizuki and myself. I mean, I'm not a mother. I'll let let your future husband know that they didn't keep a close eye on you. The one other thing I want to talk about is the fashion show, like the fashion really also took me to Tokyo and I just want to get there. I just want to get on the plane. Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty remarkable telling of a story when I was drawn to the Tokyo fashion show even when it was torrentially raining. Like there was something very romantic about that evening 
when if it was Melbourne torrentially raining, I'd be like, <laughs> fuck that, I want to stay inside. So an incredible sell of the city. Annabelle, you mentioned subservience before. I want to have a discussion with both of you about this intersection between the affair, Mizuki's relationship with motherhood, and particularly her relationship maybe with her husband, Tatsu. Annabelle, I'll start with you. I, for some reason, felt a sliver of sympathy for Tatsu. I overall didn't like him, like he was a shit husband to Mizuki, but he lives in a little sphere where his behaviour is kind of the norm, being that husband that works more than nine to five over hours and kind of like neglects his wife to keep the money rolling into the family. Like it made sense a little bit to me that he felt a lot of pressure Mm. and ended up neglecting Mizuki in ways. I also thought it was important that we got a taste of who Tatsu was before they had children. I think that was really important because I agree with you, Annabelle. I felt sympathy for both Tatsu and Mizuki, despite the fact that they both treated each other pretty poorly at times. I think it was important to get that idea of who they were before parenthood because Tatsu was a really lovely guy, it seems. Like, he didn't let things faze him. He was pretty caring towards her. They had lots of fun together. They used to go surfing. If anything, that made me terrified for my future life. I literally had a conversation (laughs) with Mitch last night after I finished this book. And I was like, what is going to happen to our relationship when we have children? And he's like, my God, can you consume (laughs) one bit of media and not apply it to your life as if this will be your issue? But I think it's interesting and I think it is so realistic that these two people are probably quite compassionate, quite great people, but they find themselves in these gender roles and they're not strong enough to break out of it, as most people aren't. I think Tatsu was just a victim of the culture that both he and Mizuki were finding themselves unhappy under. Yeah, that's exactly the sense that I had, that they were both victims of the same system. It's just that Tatsu probably had a bit more power than Mizuki. I mean, I felt so complicated about Tatsu because there were some scenes, particularly in like the first few pages where she turns to him and just asks for some help folding the washing and he just looks at her blankly and then just stares back at his phone and he won't throw the book at him even though he's inside the book, which doesn't make (laughs) any sense at all. Tear the page. (laughs) But I also have no real sense of what that working culture is like in Japan. Like how can I possibly judge that when I don't understand? I mean, there was a really interesting article in the BBC that was actually published in April that talked about Japan's sort of persistent problem with sexism. And basically in this article, they interviewed the founder and CEO of this company called Florence, which is like a not-for-profit that advocates for working parents. And Hiroki Komazaki said, historically after World War II, the combination of a hardworking husband who devotes his entire life to his company and a stay-at-home mother was encouraged. Now, the BBC went on and said, this encouragement has led to a norm in which husbands work extremely long hours while housework and child rearing falls mainly on the wives. The government's latest national survey in 2020 showed mothers still do 3.6 times more housework than the fathers. They also noted that Japan's birth rate is at an astonishing low. Marriage rates are plummeting. And it actually reminded me, I listened to an episode of The Daily a couple of months ago that I recommended on the podcast about Japan's plummeting birth rate. And it kind of all came full circle to be like, of course, this is a really big ingrained system in Japan that is so much bigger than individuals, but someone needs to change it somehow. Mm, I think that really stood out to me in this book. And I think as well in Terrace House, I never understood until the last couple of years how late people work in Japan as well, that the working hours over there and the nighttime is still considered a space for productivity. And I cannot imagine, I mean, I have so much sympathy for Mizuki, of course, but I cannot imagine 
that burden to be expected to work sometimes 18 hours a day. Like we have an eight hour work day here. It is not the same in Japan. And I think that's a really crucial element to this story as well. Can I read out one of the fights on page 62? This made my blood boil. As much as I can rationalise and go, they're both under shitty circumstances right now. The way Tatsu sometimes regarded Mizuki made me want to scream. This is from page 62. This sounds so pathetic that my anger redoubles. I feel like you think you're the only one who does any work. I work hard all day long, just as hard as you do, and you make me feel like it's not worth anything. You have no idea. There are no words in the face of his curled lip to explain exactly what he has no idea about. No idea about the minutiae of his children's lives. No idea how lonely folding another clean shirt can feel. The tears have started to run down my face now and I push the heels of my hands into my eyes. Tatsu doesn't even have the grace to look uncomfortable, let alone feign sympathy, and sits stony still. Like, just that idea that your life partner could be standing in front of you saying, you don't respect me, you have no idea how much work I do, and they're crying and you don't even want to console them, yeah. made me feel like, Tatsu, get the fuck together. Well, that's the thing. It's like you can kind of have sympathy for the culture of work, but, like, no one's telling him he needs to be this stony face, yeah. right, Annabelle? It was so upsetting and heartbreaking reading how alone she felt. There's this line in the book that reads, is it normal to fluctuate so quickly between feeling tender towards your husband and fervently wishing him a violent death? <laughs> <laughs> and I loved this line because it says so much about how underappreciated Mizuki was feeling and how her pent-up rage created these like really complicated cracks in her marriage that I don't think any of us can understand and yet it seemed like so much went unspoken that she'd reached a point of hatred which is just so sad. So sad. I mean with all of that in mind right like that she felt very suppressed that she didn't feel like she could be herself that her only role in this world was to look after her children This book gave me some of the better descriptions of motherhood that I've ever read, which was so odd and and such a weird thing to consider. But her relationship with her kids, particularly little Aki, who just seemed like the squishiest little thing (laughs) in the world, was incredible. Like that made me want a little Aki. Like that's what I wanted. Like the way that she described him in the morning climbing on her or the way that she described, I say she, Emily Atami, described like, Mizuki squishing her face into little Aki's. I was like, that is so beautiful. Their physical bond was written so well. Yeah, like when she exploded and just couldn't help but kiss him all over. That scene in bed, I was like, oh, I have that feeling towards my niece as well where you just look at them and you're like, oh, I just love you. I love you so, so much. And I think she captured that feeling. But then she also balanced that with the little frustrations and doubts that you have as a parent. (laughs) The poo scene like ruined me. I was like, what am I reading? I used to be a babysitter and it took me back. I was like, no, I don't want that for many, many years. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You kind of go between one feeling and another. You know, it's interesting. We are about 20 minutes into this episode and we haven't even touched on the affair that the book is essentially sold on. But I think that's because the affair itself was a little bit smaller than maybe it was sold as, if that makes any sense Well, at when all. you told me that this was a story about a woman cheating on her husband, I was like, I am all in, <laughs> both feet are over the line, and then I read it and I'm like, hmm, interesting. I didn't know how to sell it otherwise, but we will get to all of it after a word from today's sponsor. All right, guys, I promised that we would have a conversation about the affair, so let's do it. Mish... How did you feel about it generally? The highbrow part of myself was glad at the way it was explored. Like I felt it was quite clever. 
I felt the fact that we got a lot of the emotion but not a lot of the physical stuff was smart because it explored the theme. <laughs> However, right <laughs> my lowbrow self, which is a greater part of myself, I must admit, would have liked a little bit of titillation with the affair. Like part of me was like, oh, I could have had a tiny bit more here that I was left wanting. I agree. I wanted some sexies to be blocked. <laughs> but no, it and was... not just like fingers on a back. I want detail. <laughs> I felt you the same. Horn bags. <laughs> But it was a lovely relationship. I did love how mild it was in a good way. And I also think that it didn't really matter who Kiyoshi was. I couldn't actually picture him. I don't know Mm. if it was the same for you guys. Like he seemed like quite an interesting character. He was a restaurateur and like had a past marriage. All of that stuff didn't really shape him as a character in my mind though. But yeah, that didn't matter to me because he could have been anyone. I think Mizuki just needed a bit of a shake up. Yeah, I agree with that. He felt far more like... I you were going to say Mizuki just needed a good fuck. <laughs> well, she didn't get one. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> where am I going to go did anyway? They have, I thought they did No, they did. But we don't know if it was a great one. Yeah. Fuck, you projected I your own you, thoughts. you were satisfied, Mizuki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to say? I'm already lost. I mean, there is no doubt that Kyoshi felt far more like a device rather than a character, I think, because I also couldn't really picture him. I actually really, really liked that the affair itself was quite mild because I don't think the ending could have been the same without it. Like this was an affair that felt a little bit more like a friendship, like it was genuine and it wasn't driven by lust or sex, which we see all the time and which feels incredibly predictable in a lot of books. I think she clearly just wanted someone to see her and understand her. There was a really interesting quote in one of the earlier dates that she had with him where she said, I'll tell you a couple of things about that first night that I knew really but pretended I didn't. The way he was the first person in years who thought about the answers to the questions I asked him and looked right at me when he replied. And the way I knew exactly where on my chest my heart was every time he said my name. All she's really asking for is like decency in a conversation here. Like she's not describing anything that I think is like particularly a symptom of like this great love. Like it's really just decency, right? Yeah, it's a low bar. Like you just got to look at me, call me by my name. (laughs) (laughs) Call me by my (laughs) name. We're being derailed. I do want to bring up another element of the affair storyline that kind of annoyed me because I think the difficulty with an author selling an affair, a protagonist's affair to the reader is that you kind of need to be on board. You need to understand the reasons why that protagonist is having the affair You don't necessarily need to condone it, but you need to empathise. I didn't like the inclusion that Tatsu had had an affair before as well. Like that throwaway paragraph where it was like, oh, that time my husband slept with his co-worker and I didn't ask him anything about it because I didn't feel like I had to. I felt like that was a bit of a lazy narrative device that Emily Atami threw that in for the reader to go, oh, well, the husband has cheated before, so the wife cheating actually doesn't piss me off that much. It's almost a bit tit for tat and they've both done the same thing. It kind of levels out. I feel like it would have been a stronger challenge to the reader if Tatsu was the hardworking but loyal husband and this was the lonely wife 
who was disloyal. That would have been a stronger storyline for me than, oh, well, they've both done it. Yeah, that's... Causation, correlation, whatever. Interesting because I didn't feel very strongly about that. I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. I think when it comes to Tatsu and that, it spoke even more to me about how she wasn't even allowed to say anything, like death by a thousand cuts in terms of like what she was allowed to talk about and what she wasn't and kind of how she had to suppress almost every part of her emotion to make that relationship work. But... I don't know, it also felt like a long time ago that it almost wasn't relevant Mm. to the decisions she was making today. Yeah, for me, that little tidbit about Tatsu just kind of highlighted how affairs maybe aren't even really the problem. Like it highlights a different issue in a relationship. Yeah, I don't know. There was something about it where I was like, if you're going to put that in, at least make it work for the book. And I felt like that one paragraph is kind of the definition of saying without doing like take us to how she found out that affair unraveled it doesn't have to be long but instead of telling us oh tatsu had an affair once be like it reminds me of the day that i found this text on his phone or this happened it just felt really rushed and unusual just to throw that in it didn't work for me at all that part Let's talk about what worked and what didn't, just because that is something we always like doing in book club, if nothing else, so that we can bring in very random things to the table that don't fit under a neat theme. (laughs) Don't expose our background (laughs) chat. Annabelle, what have you got? So much of this book worked for me. I loved the way it was written. I was so surprised to know that this was Emily's first book. Mm. I thought that she wrote in a really funny way and I just thought that Mizuki's perspective was a really interesting one to hear from. The only thing that I didn't quite like was that sometimes it felt slow to me and I just don't really know why. I think it was maybe because I was expecting a juicier affair. Mm. So somewhere in the middle I was like, oh, it's going to happen. And then I realised <laughs> nothing juicy is going to happen and I guess this is it. But by the end I understood why and I loved it. It's going to be a vanilla cake but I'll enjoy <laughs> it all the same. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think sometimes with this book I found myself losing concentration. Like more than the average book, I found myself kind of getting a page and a half into a chapter and then realising, hang on, I haven't even read the last page of words. I need to go back and absorb it because it doesn't feel very sticky. The writing didn't feel super sticky to me. It did feel super smart though. So I guess it's depending on what you want from a book. Also, I found the tense and the timeline confusing. I found myself at different points being like, wait, so when did this affair start? Where am I now? Like we began the book saying the affair's already taken place. Like I'm pretty sure the affair had ended in the first chapter of the book and I felt like a more powerful story would have been a more linear timeline. Interesting. I mean, I do have to wonder about the headspace that you're both in reading this book compared to me. Like I was on holiday. I was very clear. None of this felt particularly confusing and none of it felt like I needed to use much of my brain power to work out the timeline. Maybe we are dumber than you are. (laughs) No, I I loved how it sounded the minute it started coming out. This was easy. (laughs) The timeline was just simple. No, I think, but we're in the thick of a really rough time. Like energy is pretty low. I think it would be remiss of us to not acknowledge that experience when you're reading a book. Surely that colours it in some way. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I was dealing with some pretty tricky news over the last week, like you were, Annabelle. So we're trying to cram a quite gentle story into like, a chaotic real life. (laughs) What did I enjoy? I really, really liked the brief conversations or the brief unpackings of the sexualization of young women in Japan. This was 
kind of removed from the main story. It was a commentary on Mizuki's almost teenage daughter. And I thought it was really strong because it's something I myself have always wondered about and not really been able to make sense of. In particular, this passage on page 26. And suddenly, and this is one of those thoughts I don't think proper mothers have, the uniform, once so cute and innocent, occasionally reminds me of scores of Japanese schoolgirl-related horror films, or worse, the kind of anime porn I sometimes spot men in suits reading on the metro as calmly as if they're reading Shabasaki's latest, without so much as an embarrassed glance up, even when the rush hour squeeze means my head is practically buried in the filthy pages. This parallel between a really respectful, peaceful, quiet society, but one that also has this kind of preoccupation with young girls and teen porn is such a fascinating element and dark element of, I think, Japanese culture to onlookers and clearly to Emily Atami as someone who has lived there. Yeah, that was very, very well done. I think for me, the hero of this book was the dark humour. Like, I found it a very funny book. I found Mizuki a very funny character. Even when she was being, like, really dark and kind of depressed, she would do it in such a flippant, hilarious way. Like when I... she almost threw herself off the balcony and was like, that's dramatic. I almost dropped off the balcony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she'd catch herself as well. And it felt like such a gift being given access to her internal dialogue because I thought she was such a wonderful character. Like, I loved her. I mean, I do wonder, I feel like Mizuki isn't this unconventional housewife. I feel like she was probably reminiscent of many, many, many Japanese housewives. In fact, she could have been anyone really because they often are forced in Japan through this book, as we know, to present one image to the world and have an entire personality or range of thoughts and rage underneath it all. I also felt like this book was realistic and I don't know what it is about my experience reading at the moment, but I feel like I need to read a book where I could say, yeah, that would happen. Mm, and I wonder yeah. if you guys feel the same, but I'm definitely searching for realism more and more in the books that I get and seeing a story that I know could feasibly play out. I did just read Leanne Moriarty's latest book that's about to come out in a couple of weeks. And the juxtaposition between that and this is really interesting because I always love Leanne's books, but it didn't feel as realistic and maybe her books never have been realistic, but I'm like, I don't know if I want this sort of fable anymore. <laughs> Can I give you an analogy of yeah. what I'm thinking? This book is like a long black. Like you get your coffee and it's straight and it's down the line and it tells you how it is. Leanne Moriarty is like a chai foamy latte yeah. <laughs> where you get a lot of the like sugar and embellishment and sometimes you're like, this is too much and it's too manufactured. Emily Atami's just like, here's my fucking story. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> and it's interesting that the older I get, the more I want the long black. Yeah, I, I agree. What do you think, uh, I Like speaking literally, don't like long black. So yeah. I love this book. But yes, I agree. I love reading stories where it's clearly or maybe a reflection of the author's life, but it's mm, not yeah. so strict where it's like, this is my autobiography. And so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she really lent on her own experiences. And it's that that I find interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think as well, the dialogue about finding happiness. I wonder if that is something Emily Atami herself has been grappling with as a young mum or as a new mum. I think it's certainly something we've talked about on the podcast so much lately. Yeah, exactly. Which does bring us to our last conversation point for the episode, which is about the ending and kind of what it actually means to be happy. Because I think what... Emily Atami definitely wanted to explore here is like, what does happiness really mean? Like is happiness something that you feel yourself or is happiness sort of an amalgamation of the happiness of the people around you? Mm. Mish, what did you think? 
I really enjoyed the ending. I think I saw it coming that she wasn't going to end up pursuing the affair. She wasn't going to leave her family. The affair was just something she almost needed to do for herself, as hard as that is for me to reckon with because I hate infidelity. I loved the conclusion that happiness was kind of contingent on the people around you, that you are almost one star in a constellation of stars. And if you act selfishly, purely for your own interests, that will make the people around you unhappy and that's not actually happiness. I well, think that this, would make you unhappy as well by default. Yeah, I think absolutely. So I think the passages on happiness and the exploration of happiness were also challenging as someone from a Western world who does have very different ideals probably to Japanese society and Japanese culture. I do want to read one small passage from page 177 because Emily Atami wrote, who deserves to be happy? I live in Tokyo, not some poverty-stricken, war-torn nation. I have a family, a home, food, functioning society. I have so much. Reaching for anything else surely just makes me greedy. What an interesting thing to ponder. And I think that's really reminiscent of what a lot of conversations online are like right now in Australia, where we are looking across the world and going, that's not me. Am I greedy for asking for more? And maybe sometimes the answer is yes. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think we do have an inbuilt sense of selfishness in Australia, maybe in America as well, maybe in the UK, maybe it's a Western thing. So to read about someone who considered happiness in a way that we've probably never been taught to is really interesting. It sounds a bit saccharine, but this book reminded me very much of a saying that is everyone comes into your life for a season, a reason or a lifetime. And Kiyoshi was definitely just a reason. Like I feel like he definitely came in, as we said, as a device to make her have a bit more agency, to make her feel a bit more human, to make her understand what she wanted in her life. And I think a lot of people reading this could point to someone and say, yeah, that's someone that is not in my life anymore. That person came in for a fleeting second, but they had quite a big impact on the decisions that I made later. Yeah. That's why I loved the earthquake scene. Like it was such a concrete realisation for Mizuki that it was time to say goodbye to Kyoshi. Like that was sprinkled throughout the book that she always knew that he was never going to be forever. But that scene made me cry because it was kind of like the moment she realised that yeah, her happiness extends outside to her kids' happiness as well. And there's this passage about heartbreak and how having children is like heartbreak at the end of the book. And I just thought that that was so profound. Like the idea that your children's happiness and heartbreak are so intertwined with your own was so well written. It reminds me a lot of uh, saying my mum always has said throughout my life, which is like you're only as a parent as happy as your unhappiest child. And it's like your happiness is so contingent on theirs and therefore the decisions that she's going to make as a mum to not pursue this affair is incredibly entwined with her kids' happiness. Yeah, I think it also reminded me of the far more basic bitch quote of the grass is always greener. <laughs> like, you... How many cliches in one little segment? <laughs> you are not going to be instantly happier just because you jump across to something that seems better. Like, it was very smart for her to recognise that, no, probably if she had done all this with Kyoshi, she would have found herself in the same set of circumstances looking for the same kind of person to rescue her. I think it was very much like a water your own patch. Happiness is not a binary. It's not like you're never going to be happy in this situation. You can make choices that make you happier. And I think her leaving that train and actually making that move to go, I'm getting out of here, I'm making a choice, really showed character development, which I really liked in this book. Because as she said earlier on, if she found herself in that scenario, Mizuki thought she would have just stayed, that she would have been placid and she would have just done the meek and mild thing 
and not tried to tear walls apart to actually get her children out. So to actually see her flying upstairs, kind of like pulling her children along, you could see it and you could almost be proud of someone to have that resolve and to have that determination. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the ending just made so much sense to me and it often doesn't make a lot of sense I think sometimes in stories when a affair ends and someone feels at peace with that like that seems like an odd thing to consider but I think because this affair felt so different to many other affairs it made so much sense that she was at peace and that she felt happy and that she didn't feel like she'd lost anything in fact it felt far more like she'd gained quite a lot Mm. yeah I think that's why I loved this book is because I love a happy ending and This ending felt happy. Like even though she might not from here on out be completely happy with Tatsu, we've come to learn that it's much more laid and complicated than that and she's made her decision and that she's happy with her decision. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, it is time for our ratings. Annabelle, I'm going to start with you today. Out of five? Out of five. We're going five out of five. Oh, Annabelle. Wow. Really generous. You always take me by surprise with these ratings. <laughs> I am not going to go for a five. I think the way I think of these is always what would I give it out of ten? And I would give this a seven out of ten. It's a really solid, decent read. I enjoyed it. I would do it all again. No time was wasted. It wasn't my favourite book at all from the book club, but it's a good, solid book. Can't wait to see what Emily Atami does next. So 3.5 out of 5. Nice. I am going to give it a four and a half because I loved this book. It gave me so much to think about. Like I really found myself thinking about it a lot after I put it down and that for me is like the maker of a really good book. So should we all go cheat on our partners? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, props to Emily Atami. What a debut book. Imagine writing one this good this quickly. So I can't, as you said, Mish, wait to see what's next. But guys, thank you so much for listening to the August installment of the Shameless Book Club. If you do want to read along with us next month, which we, as always, highly encourage (laughs) that you do, we have quite the sugary book for you indeed. Yeah, next month we will be reading You and Me on Vacation by Emily Henry, Two Friends, Ten Summer Trips, Their Last Chance to Fall in Love. Here's a little taster. Poppy is a wild child. Alex wears khakis. She has insatiable wanderlust. He prefers to stay home with a book. And somehow, ever since a fateful car share home from college many years ago, they are the very best of friends. For most of the year, they live far apart. She's in New York and he's in their small hometown. But every summer, for a decade, they have taken one glorious week of vacation together. Until two years ago, when they ruined everything. They haven't spoken since. Did they have sex? (laughs) I'm guessing they ruined everything by having sex. If you're listening into Internationally, this one is also called People We Meet on Vacation. So just make sure all you're doing is buying the new Emily Henry read, the one about Alex and Poppy that was released in May this year. I love that publishers are keeping us on our toes with this. You and Me on Vacation has received a 4.2 star rating after more than 20,000 reviews on Goodreads. We hope it provides everyone with the sugar hit we all need right now. As for this month, guys, that's all. I know. I'm so excited to read this next one. I think it is the book that people might need. Take me to summer. (laughs) I think it's it's a very deliberate choice from Aaron, so we hope you enjoy it. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we are on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club. We have book reviews on there, sometimes a book meme or two, (laughs) and a whole other lot of stuff. (laughs) I don't know what else. (laughs) I love that you're exposing all of our processes today. We don't know. We just chuck things up when it occurs to us. (laughs) We have firm process. Thanks so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Bye. Hold up. 
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.